0: You know when you meet someone that wears so many hats that you stand in awe of their passion and energy? Oh, Jen, I know women like that. Well, hold on to your hat, because today we're talking to Drew Montre, Vice President of Agri-Food Engagement for Feeding America, which
1: is just the start of her impressive food access resume. Join us as we talk everything from farm to table to systems, to how we increase food security in Michigan and beyond. The Speakeasy Podcast, real talk about leadership and sanity in the creative industry. I'm Karen Steffel. And I'm Jen Estel. Managing creativity and business, we probably have an opinion on that. No prohibitions.
0: Clearly, we have cocktails.
1: Uh, our cocktail is a rosemary tangerine cocktail. Jen, what is it?
0: Well, this is an interesting one. I think it's um, definitely for the folks who like to enjoy the process and a little bit of food chemistry. This is rum, sugar, tangerines, rosemary, and art and ice, um, you use the sugar and the rosemary to caramelize the tangerines, either like in a hot skillet or mm-hmm. on your grill. Then you take those tangerines, kind of muddle them as, and throw some rum in and some
1: ice, and boom, it's delicious. It's a, it's beautiful in a picture, impressive for a barbecue. Um, so grab the recipe on our website and enjoy. In the meantime, Drew, I'm so happy to have you here. So a little bit of
0: context for our listeners. Um, I met Drew, gosh, I don't remember when, but we developed a logo for her family's farm. And I've kind of had a girl crush on her ever since. And so, Drew, thank you very much for coming on the um, episode here. And last year, you got a great new job. And I thought your, your career is so fascinating. So here we are. Tell us a little bit about yourself.
2: Well, uh, thank you so much for uh, having me today. I'm I'm honored to be part of uh, this conversation, and I always love the challenge of trying to introduce myself in a, a long career wearing lots of hats um, in a few sentences. So, you know, I think that what I would say to sum it up is that and agriculture has always been foundational uh, to t- who I am. I grew up on a farm in the food processing business, studied horticulture, and have had a 20-plus year career um, in this space. And uh, in addition to my work off-farm, which has been a lot of my career, Jen, you mentioned that um, my husband and I also own Ten Hens Farm uh, in Bath, Michigan. Uh, we've been here for about 15 years now, and uh, have have worn that farmer hat in addition to uh, you know working as the founding executive director of the Michigan Farmers Market Association. Spent some time at MSU working for our College of Agriculture and Natural Resources, and just six months ago took a new job with Feeding America.
1: It's such an interesting trajectory, but it but it makes so much sense. They all fit together either like a puzzle or nesting dolls or something like just the way that your concentric circle of your career continues to have greater impact
2: well thanks for that you know i think in in some ways it's been intentional and natural and um in other ways you know i think we sometimes take paths that we don't anticipate when i when i started my career i envisioned that i would um, be a college professor someday i i um, you know see myself as someone who's always been naturally curious and a lifelong learner. Uh, And now I, um, you know, I've retained my adjunct appointment with MSU since I left. And so some ways I can say that that kind of worked out that that way, but mostly I found that I'm really pulled to mission-driven work and I keep coming back to the nonprofit sector. Uh, I think, you know, my first, one of my first nonprofit jobs was uh, when I was at Penn State working with the Pennsylvania Association for Sustainable Agriculture and uh, spent, you know, a decade here in Michigan working for a nonprofit and then took some time off and I'm back in that space. And it's something that, um, feels like a really good fit for me.
1: Before we get too deep into what you're doing now on the day to day, talk to us a little bit about your philosophy in terms of, um, I think you, when we had a, an earlier conversation before the podcast, you had said that food is a fundamental right. And, um, just philosophically, how has that driven you? How has that impacted the way that you, manage your farm um, as an entrepreneur. Talk to us about that.
2: Yeah, I think, I mean, I think that is my philosophy (laughs) that food is a fundamental right. And uh, it's, you know something that I've you know learned through my education and career is that we we have a tremendously productive agriculture system, and I'm uh, constantly impressed and inspired by people who grow our food. Uh, you know here in Michigan and across the country and, and globally. Uh, I also am disheartened, and, and you know when I see people facing hunger uh, and that we have these inequitable systems that. Uh, people have the, you know, a lot of people have daily stressors when it comes to thinking about where their next meal is going to come from. In the U S right now, we have about 38 million people who face hunger. We know that about 12 million of those are children. That's a lot.
1: Mm -hmm. The numbers
2: are staggering. uh, And there's, you know, a lot of work that we need to do in this space. And so I think that, you know, it's a it's a network. There are a lot of people working in a lot of different areas. Hunger, you know, definitely um, and food access and food security intersects with a lot of big complex issues: <laughs> poverty and housing and mental health and employment and education and you know the list goes on. So infrastructure. Th- yeah, exactly. You know, there's there's so many intersections here. Uh, so it takes, uh, you know, a whole lot of collaboration um, and people working together um, at a lot of different skills to address this. Um, but I think it's an area that um, we owe it to ourselves as a society to, to solve and to invest in. Um, and I think it's something that we can do. We have the ability um, to resolve this.
0: It's interesting to hear you talk about this because you have seen all all pieces of the scale right in um your farmers market association work you've you've worked with entrepreneurs and small businesses you and your husband manage your own small business so you understand the complexities there and you've advocated on behalf of systems for quite some time and now you're you're in your role at feeding america trying to improve systems and i i I just, I can't wait to get into that. But like the scale from something small to something large, you've touched almost every part of it. And I find, I find that fascinating and really powerful. And I feel like there's got to be a solution out there. Or is it too big to solve this, this gap between ridiculous productivity of food and too many people still going hungry? How do we, how do we get there?
2: Yeah, I don't. um, I don't think it's too big to solve. (laughs) I don't think I would. You know, I definitely think it's a a complex problem. I will say that you know, I I originally kind of came to this work in a very um, local, kind of small, mid-sized mindset. And you know, Jen, like you mentioned, I've had the opportunity to work with a lot of diversified. Food and farm organizations, um, and that are direct marketing and are really kind of focused on a very place-based, local scale. And I think they're—I um, have a deep respect for that. That's what we do <laughs> at Dunhans Farm. Uh, you know, grow for a very local market. And um, and I also see that we've had these really kind of deep divides sometimes between local and regional uh, and global or different types of production methods, you know, that could be organic versus conventional or, uh, you know, just different kind of mindsets. And my my personal take on it is that um, there's really a role for different types of, you know, we have different philosophies and how we produce things, but there's a role for all of us. And so I've, you know, worked on my career to kind of stay engaged at the at the local level, the community level, to you know, be engaged at state level and and now working at the national level. Uh, and I think that's a lot of times, you know, in production and focused on uh, food systems, but there's also the policy piece and the advocacy piece um, that goes along with it. And so I think that when we have c- complex problems, we can either make a choice to say like, oh, that's too big for us. Uh, you know, we're never going to be able to address this or we can recognize that there's uh, so many brilliant people in this world. Uh, and that when we have the will, um, I think that, you know, we'll be able to find a way. It doesn't have to be easy and it's you know going to be messy, but it's something that is worth all of us, all of us working together to solve.
1: Well, and I think Michigan's uniquely positioned to be at the table because of Michigan State Extension and ag and having all those experts that really understand food systems. Um, They have to be an invaluable partner in this conversation. you know, not all states have that as a resource either.
2: Yeah, I, I found it really interesting. A few weeks ago, the um, first of the 2023 Farm Bill hearings was held here in Michigan. Of course, uh, Senator Debbie Stabenow has led that, you know, work for um, m- many years uh, for a big part of her career. Uh, and we always say that Michigan is the second most agriculturally diverse state in the nation behind California, you know, I think a lot of people are surprised that we have 300 commodities that grow here and, you know, uh, probably about 100 different commodity groups that um, represent agriculture. But it was really interesting during that hearing. It was the first time that I had heard it described as that Michigan is the most agriculturally diverse state in the country with a reliable water source. Uh, oh. And so I was like, huh, oh, that's I've heard it described that way. Um, and, you know, it just, you know, kind of highlights the importance that, um, you know, kind of in, in the unique place that we're situated in terms of our microclimate, in terms of playing a really important role um, in the ag, agriculture, food and agriculture space here in the country.
0: So, you've taken all of that Michigan knowledge that you have, and you are um, you've taken it nationwide. So tell us a little, a little bit about what you're doing for feeding America. I think it's a very cool concept and and piece of work. So walk us through what you yeah. do today.
2: So um, Feeding America is the nation's largest hunger relief organization. We uh, are a network of about 200 food banks and 60,000 agencies or programs across the country. And my uh, role, I work on our supply chain team. And uh, my role, as you mentioned, is in agri-food engagement. And so what that means is that my team and I uh Of course, working in partnership with our our teams are really focused on increasing the amount of produce, protein, and dairy throughout the network. And so we know that when we listen to our neighbors facing hunger, that there's a big demand for nutritious foods. Uh, There's a demand for uh, produce and there's a demand for, um, you know, protein and dairy. And that's something that the Food Bank Network is really uh, working on increasing, Uh, especially, you know, 40 years ago, I think it started with more of a kind of a non-perishable focus. And, you know, how do we make sure that we're Uh, getting food whatever it is you know mac and cheese and peanut butter uh to people and we're really focused on um kind of broadening that variety and being really intentional um about the foods that we're able to provide across the network and so uh for me i love that work because i get to uh you know, bring my my background and my skill set in food and agriculture to this space and get to work with really an incredible team um, who's passionate about this work and think about all the possibilities um, that we have in front of us and identify when barriers come up. And, you know, we're working with different uh, temperature requirements and transportation needs and logistics, uh, but trying to be really thoughtful about yeah keeping people who are facing hunger at the center of our work and how do we work through this uh, to make sure we have more produce, protein, and dairy in those spaces
1: it's it's a it's an interesting challenge as I think about any food drive that me or my family has participated in. It's always asking for non-perishables because obviously there's a not only a supply chain issue but a transportation r- requirement with fresh food. And when you look at things like, the cost of fresh food, and comparing that against the dollar meal at any fast food chain, you know how le- how much less expensive it is to feed somebody um, not nourish not nourishing food. So, how do you overcome kind of the expiration date uh, with supply chain and transportation?
2: You know, I think that Karen, I'm so glad you brought that up because it's a really, um, it's a really good point, um, and that there's definitely capacity building across our network and thinking about how we make sure that you know programs or agency partners that we're working with have access to refrigeration and and spaces to um, hold perishable products, and that we have you know refrigerated trucks or that to be able to move things. Those are logistical things. and I think that the other important point here is, as you mentioned, that the cost of foods is, you know, is higher in these spaces. And also it's rising in our current context. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, we're seeing, you know, right now, I think an average of about a 10% increase in food prices. And when you look at things for, you know, animal proteins think like eggs or fish or meat or poultry, it's, you know, probably closer to 14%. Um, and we're all impacted by the increase in transportation. We're, we're all feeling that. And, you know, probably about a 20% increase in transportation costs. And so those are things that we need to be really cognizant of. Uh, you know, in our network, we work really closely with donors. Um, and that's, that's you know, fine financial donors, it's also food donors. So we work really closely with growers um, who are able to offer kind of zero cost or very low cost product, um, you know, where we're covering, um, you know, the costs that we would have to harvest or to uh, package. And we're also, you know, trying to work with manufacturers and incredibly generous retailers all to make donations to keep those costs down. And then that allows us to use our resources to think about how do we subsidize transportation and how do we pr- provide, you know, resources to increase capacity. And all of those parts are really important.
1: Does Feeding America have any um, programs that are direct to consumer in term that are kind of that circumvent the the food bank model? Like I'm thinking of, you know, the teach to fish rather than give a fish model in terms of urban gardens or community garden shares and things like that?
2: So that all kind of works through our network. And so, you know, our 200, we work directly with our 200 food banks who work directly with their agencies. There are definitely a lot of kind of best practices that are shared throughout the network. Uh, There are Programs, you know, that are highlighted. So there's a program, you know, here in the Greater Lansing area, the Garden Resource Program that's facilitated by the Greater Lansing Food Bank. That's, you know, really focused on how do we make sure that people have access to you know, transplants and tools, but also the knowledge to be able to grow, um, grow food on their own. And there are, I mean, there's so many examples of programs like that across the country. So, you know, I think our role is really to facilitate that, to share best practices and to help invest in it when we're able to.
0: Can you talk to me for a minute a little bit about how your experience being a small producer has helped your experience in in building the systems to make this happen? And I, I'm curious as to whether the sort of the CSA model, which when I was a kid, I don't think that existed. I don't know. A little bit of the history of the CSA model and how that's informing how you're able to move fresh food in massive scale.
2: Yeah, so... Um... You know, I think that from from in my experience, it's in kind of what translates to my role at Feeding America is more of my kind of production background and understanding what it takes uh, to grow uh, primarily vegetables is my background, but you know fruits and vegetables and um, you know the produce that we hear. here on our farm. It's interesting, Jen, that you mentioned the CSA model, which stands for Community Supported Agriculture. I think you're right. I think in in the US, it probably took off like mid 80s, um, but mostly on the East Coast at that point in time. We on our farm did not start with a CSA model in mind, which basically is a subscription model where, um, you know, you're Your consumers invest in the produce at the beginning of the year. Um, For our farm, um, it's $800 for 25 weeks. And then they uh, pay, you know, they pick up our farm. It's every Wednesday they pick up their farm share, uh, which is a bag of fresh veggies, you know, eight to 12 different items. We, you know, we started because Adam and I, Adam's my husband, we were both working off farm and, you know, Adam was w- working at MSU and it was kind of very doing that direct to consumer. takes a, a lot of time. And so we had started really more in the wholesale space, uh, selling to local restaurants and to local retailers um, in the greater Lansing area. But, you know, we had a wider uh, we were selling in the Flint area, up into kind of Traverse City, kind of, you know, we had a wider triangle, I would say, <laughs> of our of our distribution. And then um, in the early 2020, when uh, the pandemic hit, we, you know, we're looking at the 12 kind of area restaurants that we typically sold to, and there was so much uncertainty. And in one day, we um, just changed our website and <laughs> launched a farm box. And- yeah, it was just like, you know, very spur of the moment, not a lot of um business planning that went around with it, but it was a pivot. Um, you know, we had our greenhouse was full. It was March and our greenhouse was full of plants and we didn't know what the future held and so um, we started at a farm box in that, you know, first year. It's like we we are fortunate. We live on a we have a, you know, circle drive and we could set them up socially distanced and people could wait in line and come get their bag and we could do that in kind of a pandemic response mode. Um, and I think like all small businesses, there's a lot of, you know, change that comes your way and kind of rethinking things and trying to be creative um to respond to what's happening and your, you know, external environment. That's really what we did, but people love it. And so we still have farm boxes and and we'll keep moving um, with that model. In addition to selling um, at the farmer's market and working with local organizations like Allen Neighborhood Center.
1: I can't wait There's to someone. pick up my box tomorrow.
0: Yay. <laughs> and then, so in between, you know, we've talked a little bit about your, um, Ten hens, and we've talked about your role at feeding America, but you you grew up at you grew up on the farm, if I am not mistaken. I feel like you've always wanted to have your hands near dirt and you like to teach people about it. So is this just in your blood? Have you ever thought of something else?
2: <laughs> you know, um, it probably is just honestly, in my blood, I you know, I'm very comfortable, you know, even though I work, you know, mostly behind a computer right now, or I'm um, engaged in business meetings, I have the best of both worlds, because I also um, live on a farm, and I get to spend time outside nearly every day, um, a lot of times with my hand in the dirt. I am, you know, I, I'm not a reliable, like labor source on our farm. <laughs> I don't, um, I like to help when I can, but it's, you know, I'm, I'm not kind of, you know, a part of what I would call our farm crew, uh, but it's something that is really important to me. Um, I had, a, you know, I remember a time when I was in our vegetable garden, probably when I was in high school, thinking about what I wanted to be when I grew up. And I, I remember thinking I would, I would never work in an office a day in my life, and and that didn't turn out that way. <laughs> there's a lot of time that I spend in an office setting, but for me, it's a really good balance um, to have both. And there's something incredibly rewarding and fulfilling about um, growing food um, and growing food to be able to provide to our community and then being able to kind of, you know, take what I've learned and make that contribution to, to a larger mission.
0: It's interesting when I hear you talk about that, um, there's a whole line of thinking that we haven't really gotten into about having two careers at once. You kind of have two careers at once and that's, that's pretty special too.
1: That's a lot of juggling, well, three because yeah. you have a family.
2: Yeah, there's a lot of juggling here, and it's um sometimes it's hard to um, make sense about it. You know, so you mentioned uh, one of you mentioned at the beginning like wearing multiple hats, and I think that there was a very short phase in my life where I would try to like explain what hat I was wearing at that time, whether it was to like myself or to whoever I was talking to. So it'd be like, okay, I have my farmer hat on, or I have my MIFMA hat on, which is the acronym for the Farmers Market Association. Or I have my you know PhD student hat on right now, or I have my mom hat on. Um, and then it just like, I couldn't even keep that at all straight. <laughs> so I think I just recognized at one point in time uh, that, I wear one hat, and that's of that's of who I am. But I, um, there are a lot of things that I like to be engaged in. Um, there, it's not always a perfect balance, and um, it's messy <laughs> sometimes. It's you know, it's not a seamless or kind of like a smooth juggle. Um, I I drop things sometimes, but uh, it's a ten gallon hat. Yeah, <laughs> sure, that works. <laughs>
0: If it was a fishing hat, you'd have hooks and you could put everything on the hook and you wouldn't drop a darn thing. So I I think it might just be about your accessories. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you'll get there.
1: Yeah, I like that. Or the hat with all the cup holders. That has weird connotations though.
0: (laughs) So one other question for you, kind of in the education and forward-looking realm, it would be, number one, tell us your vision of the future, especially through Feeding America and, and systems of moving, produce and protein and dairy. And number two, if I could ask you, what's your advice for us as a culture and as people who are raising the next generation to solve these problems? What, what can well, we do to two. make a difference?
2: Those are some pretty big questions. Sorry. Um, no, that's, I love that. <laughs> um, you know, I would say um, the vision of um, our organization and a vision that I share. One of the reasons that I work in this space is a, a vision of um, an America where no one is hungry, and I would just, for me personally, um, expand that to say, you know, a world, our, our globe, where no one is hungry. I think that we um, we have the know-how and um, the ability to get there, and it's um, it's something worth working on. And I'd say, I you know, I have two daughters who are ten and thirteen. And I am, like, truly inspired by their generation, uh, the perspective that they bring and, you know, the resilience of, uh, you know, living through a pandemic. And I I think and I'm not just talking about my daughters, I'm talking about their friends and their classmates Mm -hmm. and young leaders um, who I get to see in my work. So, um, you know, I think my... um, my advice to myself <laughs> is to, <laughs> to be thoughtful um, to all of us, just to be thoughtful of the world that we're um, building with them. Um, they're really smart. And h- how do we um, how do we think about a future um, for them that is, you know, we're leaving this world in a better space for them. Uh, And I think that we need to look at young people as, as leaders um, and, and be able to work along alongside them. And so that's something that I, uh, I try to remind myself of um, as, as a parent um, along the way.
1: What can, what can people like our listeners or Jen and I do to help solve or contribute to, the imbalance in food insecurity how is there a way people can get involved is there a trusted place to support
2: yeah um you know there are a lot of ways to get involved i'd say at the local level um you know reach out to your local food bank there so FeedingAmerica.org has a really uh kind of a food bank finder it's a really easy way to just type in your zip code and uh find your local food bank uh there's you know, a lot of volunteer opportunities uh, at local food banks and the agencies that they serve. And there's, uh, you know, I contribute on a monthly basis to Feeding America. You can make a a donation, um, financial or otherwise to feedingamerica.org. There's, you know, a lot of things that as individuals we can do and, I would just say allow yourself to care um you know hunger can be invisible and uh Mm -hmm. just be thoughtful about um your neighbors and get involved Um, we there's a role that all of us can play Uh,
1: i love that on that
0: note i do too thank you very much for sharing your wisdom with us my goodness
2: thank you so much for having me i i'll have to tell you i um when I drive, I, when I drive is really the only time I listen to podcasts, but I've been back and forth to Indianapolis a couple times lately. And so I always, um, listen to at least one or two of your episodes, um, interspersed with the moth, uh, because that's my other, uh, favorite kind of storing storytelling podcast. But you have, you have some, re- I mean, I love the ones, um, the episodes that where that's the two of you. And I love when you have guests on. And so, uh, you have a, this is, you know, such a fantastic um, way to share, just to to, to share information, share stories. So thanks so much for including me. I really appreciate it. Oh,
1: thank Thank you. you. It's our pleasure to have you.
0: She just lumped us in with the mod. I know. I'm feeling very fancy. Very (laughs) fancy.
1: And I'm also feeling very fancy with this drink. I'm glad somebody else made it for us. It's a little complicated.
0: Thank you so much for your time and we'll see you next time.
2: Yeah, thanks for having me. Thanks, Drew. We're definitely
1: glass-half-full kind of gals.
0: But there are places and spaces that call for a different mindset.
1: So next time, we're exploring grief, how it affects us, our people, and our workplaces.